0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This audio is Matthew chapter 7. It contains teaching from Jesus about judging others, about asking, seeking, and knocking, about narrow and wide gates, about a tree and its fruit, and about wise and foolish builders. It is the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, which is contained in Matthews 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 7, 1 says this, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. Now, of course, this verse Is probably one of the most misused verses in the Bible, especially these days, in these days of so-called tolerance, and what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, so don't judge me. Get your hands off my body and all the stupid, idiotic things that our culture says. So I'm going to start out here by... Making a strong point here that Jesus did not mean do not judge in the abstract. He meant do not judge hypocritically. Now the context shows this. We get down to verse 5 where Jesus clearly says that if your brother has a speck in his eye, take it out. Now he says don't do it with a log in your eye, but he does say take the speck out. So that means you do have to judge. This verse, when Jesus says do not judge, it does not mean to never make a judgment at all. Christians are often required to judge the character of other people. Here's some examples. Philippians 3.2. Paul tells the Philippians, watch out for dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. That means the Philippians are going to have to judge something. Is that person a dog? Is he an evil worker? Here's an example where Jesus tells people to or excuse me, not Jesus, but John tells people to judge whether someone is a false prophet. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to t- to determine if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. When you're testing a spirit, you are making a judgment. How about this? We'll see later on in verse 16, You judge the tree by its fruit. You're making a judgment. How about in 1 Corinthians 5, 9? Paul says this, I wrote, to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. How are you going to know whether they're sexually immoral or not unless you make a judgment? How about church discipline in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 where you have to make a decision, a judgment on whether the brother is to be excommunicated from the church? So this verse is horrendously abused when people say don't judge at all. It means don't judge hypocritically and in fact we are told the opposite of not judging first thessalonians 521 paul says but test all things Well, what is test test means to make a judgment about something test all things well what is jesus talking about he was talking about as i said making hypocritical or bad judgments i'm going to give you a quote from my three commentators to give you a flavor for what this type of judgment is and it is terrible judgment It, it when the verse is used in its proper sense sense it is, it is warding against a practice which is indeed very, very, very unpleasant. Gill says this, this, This judgment is rash judgment, interpreting men's words and deeds to the worst sense, and censoring them in a very severe manner, even passing sentence on them with respect to the eternal state and condition, and words telling them they're going to hell. Adam Clark says that this judgment is rash harsh, and uncharitable judgments, the thinking evil where no evil seems, and speaking of it accordingly. And Jameson, Faw- Fawcett, and Brown say, to judge here does not exactly mean to pronounce condemnatory judgment, nor does it refer to simple judging at all, whether favorable or the reverse. The context makes it clear that the thing here condemned is that disposition to look unfavorably on the character and actions of others which leads invariably to the pronouncing of rash, unjust, and unlovely judgments upon them. Rash and unjust. There's nothing wrong with making a soberly determined, just judgment on somebody. Nothing wrong at all. Matthew 7, verse 2. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged, and with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. So if you judge somebody hypocritically, rashly, wrongly, you're going to get judged the same way. But if you judge somebody uh, carefully and soberly and righteously and with wisdom and discretion, that's how people will judge you. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That was a common Jewish proverb. Here's some other scriptures where the proverb is used in a a positive sense. Mark 4.24 Then he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you use, it will be measured and added to you. Now, this is referring to spiritual things. The more spiritual things you hear and understand, the more you receive. So use a big measure to hear and understand. And then Jesus will use a big measure to give you more spiritual truth. And referring to financial things in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And there you see that Jewish proverb again. And the idea here is if you use a big measure to give to other people, other people will use a big measure to give back to you. Going on to verse 3 in Matthew 7, reading verses 3, 4, and 5. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, Jesus says, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye, hypocrite? First take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And this this is a very easily interpretable scripture here. Don't be a hypocrite when you're pointing out somebody else's faults, because by golly, you've probably got the same fault yourself. And in fact, I read somewhere that it is, and I've experienced this too, it's common psychology, the things that you like to judge other people about are usually the things that you notice mostly about yourself. And since you know that it's in you, you notice it more clearly in other people, and so you're more sensitive to it, and so therefore you're more likely to judge that thing in your brother that you yourself have a problem with. So this is something, of course, that it's a part of our fallen human nature. We have to watch very, very carefully. Well, what were some of the examples of the log that might be in a Pharisee's eye that he refuses to take out before he judges other people? Pride, arrogance, vanity, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, covetousness, iniquity, Same things we ought to get rid of before we start making judgments about other people. Now, this log in your eye sort of makes a large contrast between the log and the speck. The log in your own eye, in other words, you've got more of the bad thing that you're judging than your brother does. He's got a little tiny speck, so that contrast is there. Adam Clark prefers the term splinter. I don't know how to translate the Greek there. He prefers splinter. So don't notice the splinter in your own eye com- contrasted with the speck in your brother's eye. I don't think that makes the contrast quite as quite as great. So I, I kind of like the translation log. Take the log out of your eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's eye. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you do take the speck out of your brother's eye. We are responsible for pointing out f- faults as long as it's done in a loving situation. I was just talking with some, one of my Chinese converts the other day on the phone. About you, got to be careful when you go to this person at at work who's driving you crazy. You got to be careful because the thing that you see in her, she she could come back and put it on you. So you got to be careful. But we do, we do have to point out other people's faults. But it's in in the church. It's uh, in a in a in a context and an environment of love and support and admonition and warning and encouragement to build us up. Matthew chapter 7 verse 6 Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them with their feet turn and tear you to pieces The dogs that Jesus is referring to were not the nice little pups that we have today for pets that curl up on our sofas these dogs were unclean dogs of the street and of course they were held in low esteem they fed on carrion and garbage and they were coarser and fiercer than our dogs They were savage, they snarled, and and so Jesus is referring to savage or snarling haters of truth and righteousness. Well, naturally you're never going to give something like that to a dog to eat. Well, now Jesus is making the analogy to holy things. Don't give a holy thing to a Pharisee or to anybody else who's going to turn on you, twist what you say, and not pay any attention to the Jesus that you're trying to tell them about. There's no point in giving good news to people who don't appreciate it. Now, this principle will come up a lot when you witness. I remember one time I was working in a home for neglected and abused girls, and there was a lot of, shall we say, unregenerate behavior going on amongst these young ladies. And I I had a a Bible study, and I realized they weren't listening to the Bible study. And so I just shut the Bible, and says, I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. A few hours later, the director of the home comes back from where he was, and one of the Young ladies runs out of the trailer and says, "He called me a pig. He called me a pig." They're trying to accuse me of calling her a pig. It's a proverb, folks. I had to try to explain to her. It's a proverb. It doesn't mean that you're a pig. It means that you're that I'm not supposed to teach you if you're not willing to listen. This young girl later became a very dedicated disciple of Christ. She had a horrible life. She was an orphan. Neglected, abused, and she ended up marrying a farmer somewhere and ended up doing real well in her life. I found out later. But at any rate, who tramples and who tears? They will trample them with their feet. That's the pigs will trample the pearls that you throw to the pig. They don't appreciate the pearls, and so they just walk on them. Whereas the dogs will turn and tear you to pieces. A pig won't do that. I don't know. Some pigs, if you, I've, I climbed into a pen one time with a big sow, a mother sow, and that pig came after me. So I'm not sure. A big sow won't tear you to pieces. And a wild boar in the woods down here in South Carolina, you hear people boar hunting. They will tear you to pieces. So I don't know. Maybe it's referring to both the dogs and the pigs tearing you to pieces. But anyway, the result is unpleasant. Don't waste your time witnessing to or trying to teach people who will not listen. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. Jesus says, Keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep searching, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, this is a key principle in the kingdom. There are so many people that are looking for a genie in the bottle. All they have to do is rub the bottle. Out comes a genie and says, Master, your wish is my command. It doesn't work that way because if God acted that way, There would be no room for faith. He would just be a servant, your servant. And this is what, of course, the word of faith, the word faith movement does. You quote the mantra, out comes Jesus, and he says, and you say, Jesus, I command you. God, I command you. Well, actually, they say, I command the situation. I guess they're not that impious. But basically, that's their god. I've, I know this because I've been around these faith people for a long time. When I was involved in the charismatic movement, and by the way, I am charismatic. I believe in it. I speak in tongues an hour a day. So don't get me wrong. Just because I'm denouncing this excess of this error of the faith message, you can't do this. Faith means you pray and you don't see the answer, so you believe that which you don't see and you wait keep asking, then when it doesn't occur, you ask again. And when it doesn't, and God doesn't answer it, ask again, because God has his timing as to when he's going to answer a prayer. If he answered your prayers all the time right now, it would interfere with his overarching plan for not only you and your family and your friends and your church, but also for the universe. He does things in his own good time. You just keep praying, and you and you'll get it and you and, and you'll eventually get it. This is assuming, assuming of course that you're not asking amiss, as James says, you have not because you ask amiss, assuming you're asking for the right things. Now, notice it says keep searching. How many times I remember searching for years about the Olivet Discourse and the Book of Revelation. I mean searching. Keep searching. I don't I don't, you know, you just can't give up because the answer's not right there in front of you. Keep searching. There's still an awful lot of things I don't understand, and I don't, and I want to understand. And sometimes I think, well, maybe I shouldn't even bother to try anymore. Maybe I should just quit. But no, Jesus says, keep searching and you will find. Again, you're searching for the right things, and you're searching for something that he wills to reveal to you, of course. You have to put those implied conditions on the statement there. Everyone who asks, receives. The one who searches, finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. So this should encourage us to persevere when things are are not are inexplicable to us and when things don't make sense to us which of course happens all the time matthew chapter 7 verses 9 through 11 what a what man among you this again this verse by the way is, is carrying on with the idea of asking and searching and seeking and petitioning jesus says what man among you if his son ask him for a bread will give him a stone Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is paralleled in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 12. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? So we've got an extra thing added there, egg and scorpion. What is the what's, Why these particular things that a, an earthly father might ask for? Well, a stone is shaped somewhat like a loaf of bread. So the idea here is if you're asking for bread, will the father give him some, give the son something that looks like bread, but you can't eat it? Or if he asks for a fish, a snake is some, it looks somewhat like a fish. So the son wants a fish in order to eat, and a snake somewhat looks like a fish, kind of slippery, kind of slimy. Oh, my gosh, I got a snake instead of a fish. What kind of a father would do that to a son? And uh, I don't know how an egg looks like a scorpion. But at any rate, the idea is God will give you good things, not fake substitutes, not things that that are repulsive to you, that turn on you. or that, That's that's just way human fathers are. They like to give gifts to your children. Well, if God is much greater than a human child, and, and you notice here he says, if you then who are evil, meaning he's referring to evil fathers, that doesn't mean evil in the absolute sense. It means less good. The heavenly father is good by contrast to a man, and the contrast to uh, a heavenly father to an earthly father is so great that it makes the earthly father look evil by contrast, but it doesn't mean that he is precisely, in a strict theological sense, evil. It's just talking about he's not God. If an earthly father can good, gifts good give good gifts to his children, how much more shall your heavenly father give good gifts to you? That means God loves to give things to his children. Now you hear people talk about, well, you're just in a bless me religion. And that's true. A lot of times people do ignore the hard parts of the gospel, the hard aspects of discipleship, the cost of discipleship. There's no question that people do that. And there are some people who are in a bless me religion and they'll say, bless me, bless me, bless me. And as soon as God says to do something difficult, like love your enemy or whatever, forgive somebody, oh no, well, they can't do that. But on the other hand, you can go so far in that direction, you forget that God says that he likes to give good gifts to you. And how many people in their own pride and self-independence say, I don't need God, I'm not going to ask him for that. And you need to ask God for everything, everything that is wrong in your life, every challenge that you face. You need to ask him. Please, Lord, I can't, apart from you, I can do nothing. Please give this to me in your proper time when I need it and ask and then wait and ask and ask and ask until you get it. And then you got a good praise report when you do get it. And if you don't get it, it means it wasn't in his will to give it to you. It's just as simple as that. The parallel passage in Luke adds something a little interesting here. Luke 11, verse 13. Luke says this If you, well, Jesus is talking and Luke is reporting, if you then who are evil know how to get give good gifts to your children how much more will the heavenly father give the holy spirit to those who ask him so here jesus was uh, a little bit more precise he says the holy spirit now of course the only time i know of anybody asking for the holy spirit is in those pentecostal passages in acts and of course john macarthur doesn't would not believe that somebody could actually ask the holy spirit to for the father to give them the holy spirit but here right here in luke chapter 11 says that the Heavenly Father, if you ask for the Holy Spirit, will give it to him. And I, I don't know exactly. It may be referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It might not be. But, of course, Phil Johnson and John MacArthur would call people who ask for the Holy Spirit scams, frauds, charlatans, and all the other vituperous language they use. But Jesus says, ask the Holy Spirit. He's a good God. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, Do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. Now, of course, this is the so-called golden rule, which we recognize as soon as we hear it. And I like the King James a little bit better, do unto others what you would have them to do unto you, because that's how I'm used to hearing the golden rule. It comes straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there are lots of places in world history and world culture where there's a negative version of the golden rule, which goes like this. Do not do to others what you would not want others to do to you. Now, here's some examples rabbinic judaism taught that hinduism teaches that confucianism teaches that the greeks taught it and the romans taught it so that idea was everywhere but nowhere do you find the positive version of the golden rule do positively for others what you want them to do to you so on your own motion show some good to somebody to love somebody love the unlovable and so forth on your own motion and then people will uh, do what you would want them to do to you you want people to love you then you love them back you want people to say nice things about you, and you say nice things about other people. It's a positive thing, not a negative thing. Now, notice that this golden rule is the law and the prophets, which is just the short way of saying the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Sometimes it's the law and the prophets and the writings. Now, this is a very good verse for people who say there's no love in the Old Testament. These fools on the Internet who say God is a rapist. He likes to murder children, and he and he likes to murder people, you know, because of the judgment that he's wreaking on the those lovable Canaanites who sacrifice their children to to idols. Whenever they see that judgment language, they say, see there, God of the Old Testament is nothing but judgment. No, the the God of the Old Testament is the same God that's in the New Testament. It's a God of love. And he says that uh, in the Old Testament, you can read the Old Testament and find out that if you do for others positive things, they will do good things back to you. I haven't actually found a place where that is actually, in so many words, stated. But as a general rule, Jesus is saying, look, there's nothing wrong with the law and the prophets, and in fact, it's a good thing, and you have misinterpreted the law and the prophets, you Pharisees and you Jews. It's not just about judgment. It's about positively showing love. Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, Jesus continues, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the road road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Now, Jesus here is referring to himself as the narrow gate. John chapter 10, verse 7. So Jesus said again, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep, or I am the gate of the sheep. So Jesus is saying, enter into the kingdom through me. Now, the Jewish lawyers distinguish between a wide road and a narrow road, and this is what Jesus is referring to. A wide road had to be 16 cubits wide, and a narrow road was 4 cubits wide. So Jesus is pointing out to something in their daily life they knew. The wide road leading straight to destruction. That means the people who are following the Pharisees. They're the ones that are going to be destroyed. The ones who follow Jesus, and how hard it was to follow Jesus in the midst of all that horrible persecution they had to undergo. That was a narrow road. And so the gate on that narrow road was small, and the road that led through that narrow gate was difficult. And beyond that narrow gate was life, and few find it. Now, this verse, again, is misused many times by dispensational premillennialists and the pessimistic amillennialists that say, oh, at the end of the world, is going to be a great apostasy, and all hell's going to break loose, and there's going to be hardly any Christians, and we're going to be polishing the rails on a sinking ship and how depressing it is to be a Christian because all the nuclear bombs are going to be falling and the black helicopters are going to be flying through the sky and there's going to be a 200 million man army from China that's going to wipe out Europe and then it's going to wipe and so forth. How do you reconcile that interpretation of this verse with the the verses where Jesus talked about a mustard seed? You plant the mustard seed and it's going to grow and grow and grow until the birds who rest in it will be birds from every nation how do you reconcile that with the promised prediction of the growth of the gospel and in fact a growth of the gospel which is exactly happened there's over what a billion i forgot the number's now but it's over a billion people now that believe in jesus that's living that's not counting all the hundreds of millions through past years who are, who have died and gone on with the lord how does that reconcile with how narrow is the gate well the way you reconcile it is is, is, is during Jesus' time, the gate was narrow, and very few people found it. I mean, after all, it was only a, a small number of disciples who followed Jesus. Remember, there was a lot of people going out to hear him, but then when it came time to crucify him, they were all out there yelling, kill him, crucify him, crucify him. So, yeah, things were small at first, but things are going a lot better now. A lot of people are finding it. Now, I guess you could make an application to the individual and say, "Yeah, it's difficult to follow Jesus. It is. There's a cost of discipleship, and so it's a narrow gate to go through uh, Jesus to find him to get saved." I guess you could do that, but I think in the con- in the context of the of the teaching here, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was talking about how hard it was to follow him back when the Pharisees were living it it should the parable should not be interpreted to say that very few people are going to get saved because that's not true lots of people are going to get saved we need to go out and witness and gather in the elect and gather in the sheep Matthew chapter 7 verse 15 Jesus says beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravaging wolves Now, this is probably referring to all the false prophets who Jesus predicted in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse who would arise before the destruction of Jerusalem at AD 70. Matthew 24, verse 11 says this, Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And, of course, if you have a preterist interpretation of Matthew 24, which I do, an Orthodox Preterist interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. This verse fits right well in with what Jesus taught at the end of his ministry as well as what he's teaching now at the beginning. There's always going to be false prophets who go around and saying, The Messiah is here. Jesus had already awakened the Messianic expectations. John the Baptist actually uh, had awakened the Messianic expectations even at the beginning of his ministry. And so obviously there are people who are going to go around saying, Hey, the Messiah is here and I'm him but they're fake. Sheep's clothing, ravaging on the outside, ravaging wolves on the inside. Who were these false prophets? John Gill says they were scribes and Pharisees. There's a problem with that because scribes and Pharisees were actually teachers and not prophets. I don't know if you can make such a big distinction about that because a false prophet or false teacher, I think, are very similar. They are different, though. I will say this. A lot of old commentators, a lot of reform people will do this. In fact, I remember talking to a... PhD in theology, who kept talking about referring to the charismatic gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, he kept calling it teaching. I said, well, it's not teaching, it's prophecy. And, and I, I, and it was like I was talking to a wall. It was like he was conditioned to think that prophecy and teaching were the same thing. Well, since then, I've read in a lot of commentaries, commentators will say this all the time, that prophets are teachers. No, they're not. If they were teachers, why would Paul make such a big distinction between prophets and teachers in 1 Corinthians 14? That is a foolish, unforced theological error. But having said that, I really think that whether it's a false prophet or a false teacher, they're, they're the same thing. There's sheep on the outside, inwardly, uh, and inwardly they want to eat you alive. Jameson Fawcett Brown ha- has something interesting about these false prophets. They usually say that the gate is not narrow and the road is not difficult. They're usually preaching something that's easy. If you just believe me, you've got it made. I'll take care of all your financial and health and relationship problems, and you'll have it made. 2 Corinthians 11, 13. Paul refers to false apostles. He says, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So whether they're false apostles, false prophets, false teachers, they're all the same thing. They look good on the outside, and the inside, they're terrible. Well, so if we can't look at the outside, how do we know that they're false? Go on down here to Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20. You will recognize them by their fruit, Jesus says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you will recognize them by their fruit. So he rep- he repeats that word fruit over and over again so there's your answer. You want to tell the truth from the you look at their fruit well now the next question is is what is the fruit is it how accomplished this teacher is or prophet or apostle is how accomplished he is how many works he does how many uh humanitarian works or religious works or churches he's got built or religious organizations No, because cultists, false prophets do all that. They go out and look at the Jehovah's Witness, the kingdom of the Mormon temples. They're beautiful. That's not what it's talking about. You don't judge them by those external works. Could it be judging them by their bad doctrines? Many older interpreters and later interpreters say that, and I guess I agree with that. But Jameson Fawcett and Brown does not agree with it. They say, "Um, no, that's the tree itself is the bad doctrines, not the practical effect of their teaching. Well, they, Jameson Fawcett Brown says the tree itself is the is the the teaching and the practical effect of their teaching people not getting edified in Christ is the fruit. Well, that's a, that's hair splitting to me. Bad teaching. You can look at a prophet and, or a teacher or an apostle, and they teach something that doesn't fit with the, the Bible. You say, well, yeah, but there's lots of different interpretations. Okay, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, like somebody says, there's four persons of the Trinity, or I am the Messiah, or something like that. Something that's obviously, something that contradicts the Nicene and Apostles' Creed. How about that? There's no resurrection of the dead, so bad doctrine can be bad fruit. Again, that can be a problem, though, sometimes, because sometimes what I call bad doctrine, you call good doctrine, so we might have problems there. How about immorality? That's a little easier. you got a teacher, and he's out there shacking up with a secretary. Well, problem with that is a lot of people who are teaching good stuff and who are good people are weak, and then they get seduced, and then, they, of course, they lose their ministry, but uh, they weren't really false prophets. So that one doesn't work exactly either. How about the fault of the bad fruit is the opposite of the good fruit the fruit of the spirit which is love joy peacefulness long suffering and so forth kindness gentleness peace and joy just take the opposite of that and you see strife impatience condemnation well that's a good indication this person's not a true person again sometimes Christians who are orthodox doctrinally and who are not who are not heretics who are not cultists they are actually born again sometimes they don't they exhibit unregenerate behavior even though they themselves are regenerate. So that doesn't work all the time either. So you've got to use a lot of discretion on this fruit thing. And fruit takes a while to grow. Sometimes you've got to watch somebody for a while before you really realize. I've, I've been burnt on that. I watched somebody for several years before his fruit became obvious. He wrecked every church he got in touch contact with. He wrecked every friend he had. He wrecked every relationship. And he had to be dealt with. But there's your answer. This These false teachings can be very, very subtle. Notice that the false fruit... Well, excuse me, not the fruit. The tree that is producing the bad fruit is thrown into the fire. Fire, of course, there symbolizes judgment like hell. (laughs) Remember John the Baptist a couple of chapters earlier? Even now the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So Jesus here is talking about trees that produce bad fruit. And John the Baptist was talking about trees that produce bad fruit. And they both of them said that those kind of trees are going to be thrown into the fire. Again, we're not talking about Christians who are sinning, that need to be judged, need to be excommunicated. We're talking about anti-Christian, little anti-Christ, cultist. Matthew verse 7, chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you depart from me you lawbreakers this verse is talking about false prophets and we need to make the point which we should always make when we talk about prophecy in the New Testament prophesy primarily means to give a message from God not necessarily to predict so this is people who go around giving messages in the name of Jesus that they are from God and Jesus said well no you prophesied in my name you drove out demons in my name and you did miracles in my name I never knew you so these are obviously false prophets well, on that day, many will say to me, "That means on Judgment Day when they're getting judged for their sins." The script now day doesn't always mean final Judgment Day, but in this case, the context shows us that it means that. Here's some scriptures where day means final Judgment Day: Second Timothy one verse twelve, and that is why I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed because I know the one I have believed in, and I am persuaded that He is able to guard what has been entrusted me until that day, until the, until Judgment Day. Second Timothy four eight. "...there is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing." So he's going to get the crown of righteousness on Judgment Day. So on Judgment Day, Paul's going to get a crown of righteousness, but these false prophets are going to get what they deserve. Now, here's an example of where people drove out demons. They drove out demons in Jesus' name, but they weren't followers of Jesus." Now, here's an example where that's possibly true that actually happened in the Gospels. Mark 9, verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Now, that guy that was driving out demons might have been a believer in Jesus who was actually believing in Jesus and driving out demons, or he could have been a Jewish exorcist or something, found out Jesus' name was powerful and started using it hypocritically. We don't know for sure, but here in Acts 19:13 we see an example of that where we know for sure that people were using Jesus' name hypocritically, without heart intent behind the exorcism. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Well, it's ironic that these people that are driving out demons in Jesus' name are going to end up in Satan's hell. Now, that's an example of prophecies done in Jesus' name with no faith belief with no trust in Jesus. What about miracles? How is it possible to do miracles in Jesus's name with no faith? Now that I don't know, and I don't think there are any examples of it. So I don't know what Jesus meant by that. People who do miracles in Jesus's name, uh, I don't know, unless they're doing fake miracles. I can't believe somebody would do a fake miracle in Jesus's name. Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and its collapse was great. Now, this is a famous little section of scripture that the meaning of which is obvious the rock is jesus you build you build your life on jesus and no matter what happens you're not going to fall but you build your house on the world the sand and you're sooner or later going to get washed out the interesting thing that people don't think about this patches though is the word acts jesus said therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them and then in verse 26 he says everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them Act is the key word. There's a lot of people who hear. There's a lot of people who will even speak the words of Jesus and talk about what a great thing it is to do what Jesus said, but they never do it. Talk is cheap. So, doing is important. Now, Adam Clark relates the acts that Jesus is requesting to the law of Moses. And this is a typical, in my opinion, an error that people do all the time. They always talk about any time you got to do, you got to look back to the Ten Commandments and to the law of Moses. This is what Adam Clark says. Many suppose that the law of Moses is abolished merely because it is too strict and impossible to be observed, and the gospel was brought in to liberate us from its obligations. But let all such know that in the world of the old covenant nothing can be found so exceedingly strict and holy as this sermon which Christ lays down is the rule by which we are to walk. Well, Clark here in this quote is acting like it's wrong to suppose that the law of Moses is abolished, and then in the same quote he says that Jesus' rule is stricter. Well, if Jesus' rule is stricter, that means the law of Moses is abolished. It's abolished, but it's replaced by the stricter law of Christ. Jesus is talking about his words, not the law of Moses. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. So we need to, and we realize that Jesus, of course, incorporates a lot of the laws of Moses in the New Testament. Jesus has said, and his apostles, well, let's go to the source. Let's go to the, the law of Christ. Let's go to the new covenant and look at what Jesus and his apostles said. Here's an example, James 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Don't just... Talk, don't just hear. Do Luke 11:28. He said, "Even more, those who hear the word of God and keep it are blessed. Keep the word of God." And again, that's the law of Jesus, not just the law of Moses. Romans 2:13. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the Lord will be declared righteous. Now, there Paul is talking about the law of Moses, but he's talking about how Jews, uh, in order to be righteous, they got to do the law, not just believe in it. And of course, nobody could do the Mosaic law. 1 John 3, 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. So actions, 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 they really do speak louder than words. Without deeds, words are just, a empty, just an empty hypocritical profession. If, if you don't act on the words of Jesus... Here's the trouble that comes upon you, according to this verse. You got troubles coming down, up, and right across. The rain comes down, the floods come up, and the winds blow sideways. Up, down, and sideways, you got trouble. Nothing but trouble. And that's the way most people live their lives who aren't Christians. Read the newspapers, read novels, watch TV, watch movies. And you will see that the human race is totally screwed up. And it's nothing but trouble. I don't care how much money you got. I used to love to watch biographies of rich businessmen. I still do. I like to read biographies of old rock stars, businessmen, and movie stars. And the tragedy is horrible because they have everything. Money, fame, power. And the tragic ends of their lives is almost universal. Every now and then maybe not. But not most of the time it's pretty bad. There's exceptions to that like... Christian movie stars, there's a few of them, like Jimmy Stewart, he lived fine. There's Christian big businessmen like uh, John D. Rockefeller was a Christian. He did all right, he, despite all of his trouble. But most people, this word of Jesus is so true, and you can be borne out just by reading and watching. Watch A&E biographies. Most people who are famous and have money and power, not based upon the word of God, they end up living horrible, horrible lives that you, that neither you nor I would ever change our lives for. Chapter 28, chapter 7, verses 28 through 29. When Jesus had finished this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Now, let's see the contrast now between Jesus' teaching and the rabbi's teaching. I got this list of contrast here from various commentaries from the NIV Study Bible, John Gill, and Adam Clark, and I've just strung it together. To give you a, a feel of a contrast, the rabbis quoted themselves for their authority, but Jesus used divine authority. He either assumed he was God, or he assumed the Father was his authority. He would say things like, but I say unto you, showing that he was speaking as a lawgiver. He worked miracles along with his teaching. The Pharisees didn't do that. His teaching carried its own evidence and convictions with it, because his arguments were irresistible. His subject matter was more weighty than the rabbis. The rabbis were interested in rituals, traditions, how you wash your hands, how you wash your cups. They talked about frivolous cases of conscience, ridiculous distinctions, and puerile splittings of controversial hairs. Their manner of delivery was great. Was with great affection. Excuse me, Jesus' manner of delivery was with great uh, emotion, great ardor, great fervency, great majesty. But the scribes, and the rabbis and the Pharisees taught in a cold, lifeless manner. And as a result, there were huge crowds, as it says in verse 28 here. The crowds were astonished. The teaching was such that a lot of people followed Jesus to listen. Now this is at the beginning of his ministry, and already he's he's causing a storm. And this is going to, of course, lead to the eventual conflict with the Roman authorities and with the Jewish authorities. That's going to get him killed and he's going to become the savior of the world. I hope you enjoy this lesson. Stay tuned. Next audio will do... Matthew chapter 8.